0: Hey there! Welcome to the second episode of the fourth season of Science & Society. I'm Drew, a med student and CrossFit Junkie.
1: And I'm Liv, a retired beauty queen and biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life.
0: This month, we are bringing on Doug Drysdale, entrepreneur and mental health advocate, whose company Cybin aims to expand the treatment options for those suffering from mental health disorders.
1: His company focuses on the development and establishment of psychedelic compounds as new therapeutic avenues for mental health-related indications.
0: Let's get after it. Doug Drysdale is an experienced investor, corporate director, and CEO in the healthcare sector. With a track record of building and turning around pharmaceutical companies, he has completed 16 corporate acquisitions across three continents and raised and invested approximately $4 billion in public and private capital. Notable achievements include transforming Norwich Pharmaceuticals and leading Alvagen's growth to $500 million in revenues across 35 countries. He also significantly increased the enterprise value of Pernix Therapeutics from $80 million to around $800 million and raised $465 million of capital for the company. Doug holds a bachelor's degree in microbial and molecular biology and was recognized as Entrepreneur of the Year by Ernst & Young in 2012.
1: Hi Doug, welcome to the show. It is such a pleasure to have you.
2: Hi, Drew and Liv, Uh, it's uh, good to be here, thanks for having me.
1: So Doug, can we start by learning more about you, your trajectory through your career and what brought you to Sybin, ultimately, where you are now?
2: Yeah, I've been in pharmaceuticals all my career. I grew up in the UK, uh, spent the first decade of my career there, um, moved to the US a little over 20 years ago, and spent the last two decades. here in the United States uh, and the whole time in healthcare. So um, initially doing a lot of uh, business de- development and R&D licensing. I, um, I have a molecular biology background and then got into MA and and then buying companies. And, and that really took up the first half. And then the second half, I've been running pharmaceutical companies. So four companies now, uh, two public and two private. Um, and, you know, the road to cyber to was a personal one. Uh, all of uh, us within the company, our founders, all of us uh, have a, um, a story, you know, a personal connection to, to mental health, to a mental health challenge, you know, whether it's uh, us, uh, us personally or a loved one or a relative. Uh, it might be depression or addiction or anxiety disorders or an eating disorder or PTSD. I mean, unfortunately, uh, it's pretty ubiquitous. These days, I think every one of us knows somebody that has suffered or is suffering. For me personally, it was my mother. Uh, When uh, she was 41, she died from lung cancer. And although she died of her cancer, the way I look at it is that it was her addiction uh, that killed her. And uh, nicotine is probably the most addictive substance on the planet and uh, really difficult to overcome that. So um, when I started learning about the potential for psychedelics and addiction and how it has these really powerful effects, uh, on, on that disorder and other disorders like depression. Then I got really excited about it. I had to be a part of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds like a unfortunately awesome way to get involved, um, in the cause that being said, can you provide a little bit of background on what Sybin hopes to accomplish? in the space of psilocybin and why there's a, a need for alternative treatments that aren't currently like are alternative pharmaceuticals that aren't currently on the market. Um, yeah. Can you elaborate on that?
2: Yeah. And no, that's just interesting where you put it alternative pharmaceuticals. Cause kind of what we're trying to do is take these, uh, molecules that might currently be treated as alternative medicine and turn them into mainstream medicine. Uh, So we've known a lot about psychedelics for six, seven decades now. Um, We know a lot about their their chemistry, their metabolism, their toxicology. So we're starting from a base of a lot of information, 65 or so clinical studies using psilocybin uh, in, in a range of different mental health conditions, particularly depression and addiction. And what's really different is that these are treatments that you give once or twice uh, maybe every six months or maybe once a year or something like that, pretty infrequently, unlike the way we treat these uh, conditions today, which is to give drugs every single day uh, to be kind of battling the, the signs and symptoms and not tackling the underlying cause of the disease. So it's a completely different way uh, to treat uh, conditions like, like depression, which I think could completely revolutionize how we think about these diseases.
1: So you mentioned that we've known a lot about psilocybin for six or seven decades. But despite that, we haven't seen a lot of new research come out and it certainly hasn't really reached the public light until at least in our lifetime, I would say like the later half of our lifetimes. Um, and I think I've seen the most over the last few years, maybe selection bias because I've been looking more. But, you know, why was it left alone for so long and how did the history of psychedelics in especially particularly in the U.S., how did that play into why we couldn't explore these drugs as therapeutics until more recently?
2: yeah yeah i mean we could get into all kinds of political uh, history <laughs> now and you're definitely showing your age at this point so uh uh look i mean uh, there was a lot of interest uh in in these molecules they were discovered some of them in the in the 50s and 60s uh lots of work went on in in the, in the 60s and 70s um the harvard and other places and some really good science but they became kind of mainstream uh in a in a cultural way where they fought, sort of formed part of the, the for want of a better word, the hippie movement uh, right around the time that the U.S. was at war uh, in Vietnam and uh, kind of well, in some ways connected with uh, anti-war uh, protests. And so it, it seemed to be at a time, I think, a political move to try and shut down that movement and uh, because it was impacting uh, the U.S.'s ability to to um, to recruit folks to to go and fight in the Vietnam War. Uh, and so uh, psilocybin and LSD and others became schedule one drugs that you know, couldn't be used uh, in that way. And that shut down a lot of research, you know, a lot of, you have, you have to have specific licenses and 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 uh, facilities and security and various things to manage schedule one drugs, which are typically drugs like heroin and cocaine. Um, so these, these molecules, these treatments, and even naturally occurring ones were thrown in that same bucket and it just made, It just made uh, research quite challenging and and expensive at that time. But there's been a renaissance. There have been organizations uh, such as Johns Hopkins, uh, NYU, Imperial College in London, uh, University of New Mexico, um, UCSF, uh, Mass General in in in, uh, in Boston, a whole range of really big academic institutions that have started to form psychedelic research centers and do psychedelic studies, and we've seen a real growth in those studies in the last ten years. And it's taught, and these are more robust studies focused on uh, developing these treatments into medications rather than uh, rather than some of the the earlier work that was done. So great progress.
0: It, it sounds like. Science as a field, and you know, I, I might be missing the mark here, but science as a field 60, 70 years ago was not as mainstream um, as it is today. And it's, maybe that's just with you know, recency bias with you know, the COVID um, pandemic happening over the last couple of years, and you know, everybody trying to you know, read and engage with science more in that time. Um, so, you know, maybe like that disconnect between the main like mainstream culture and like the re because like you said there was research being done on these compounds and you know research i mean as you know and as live knows and i know it's you know highly regulated and there's a lot of like safety protocols and things of that nature that have to be adhered to so it, it's really interesting how there's like that so- socio-political um tie to it all to that movement um, yeah, look,
2: I think uh, I think the stars have aligned a little bit, right? And at the same time, there's been a resurgence in research. We have been through this COVID pandemic uh, that has led to uh, an increase in mental health disorders. All all, all mental health issues have uh, gotten worse during the pandemic. Depression, addiction, substance abuse, uh, suicidality. Um, but at the same time, we've also become more aware of those mental health issues and more willing to talk about it. And you put that in the context of, in parallel, uh, a wave of cannabis <clears throat> legalization essentially across the U.S. and um and people being more open to alternative substances. And I think I think those three things have aligned. You know, COVID, mental health, um, cannabis, and the research all all have kind of come together to make this the right time.
1: It's interesting that you bring up cannabis because I think what's interesting about psilocybin and cannabis is that they share sort of this natural origin and you mentioned it when you were talking about the other uh substances that were put on schedule one that were considered Schedule one um drugs back in the 60s and 70s so if you could just tell us about where psilocybin comes from um and you know how is cybin as a company hoping to use that to to treat mental mental illness
2: yeah so, so psilocybin is um is a naturally occurring compound it's a tryptamine or an endonamine uh, and it's, uh, it's naturally occurring in about 200 species of, of mushrooms. Uh, but it can be synthesized chemically, uh, as we are doing in a, in a lab, to create a pure form. Uh, because within different species of mushrooms, there's a lot of variability, as you can imagine. So we need that pure form, reliable supply in order to be able to, uh, to study. Uh, and as I said, these, these clinical studies that we've seen in, in academia have really shown promising results. Uh, and, and depression and addiction. And we're leveraging all that work uh, to, now, to now create FDA-approved treatments from those psychedelics that can be used to treat disorders like depression, anxiety disorders, and addiction in a, in a whole new way than they've been before. Um, I can talk a little bit about how psilocybin works. Um,
1: <clears throat> yeah, that'd be awesome.
2: It interacts. Uh, so psilocybin itself is a prodrug. Uh, so means, which means it's not active in the body itself. It's converted, metabolized to silicin. So silicin is 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 the active, and silicin interacts with serotonin receptors in the brain, and they create this period of temporary neuroplasticity. Um, our brain is pretty plastic when we're kids, and that plasticity kind of goes away as we as we become adults. Like like many of our systems kind of form over adulthood. Um, but the neuroplasticity during a psychedelic experience creates new connections and new networks in the brain. And uh, you can actually see that happening under fMRI if you're looking using you know, those neuroimaging uh, devices. And for a long time, we thought that depression was caused by changes in neurotransmitter levels, you know, like serotonin or dopamine. Uh, and now we know that um, those changes in, in neurotransmitter levels are more likely a symptom uh, of depression and that the a real underlying cause of depression is more likely to be one of brain circuitry. So how different parts of the brain connect with each other or modulate one another. So perhaps this uh, high level of neuroplasticity that occurs from psychedelic dosing is helping to address some of those circuitry issues. Right? And, and and reestablishing connections, uh, helping helping patients overcome negative thoughts, right? rumination, bad habits, and we think that um, we're able now to challenge and tackle the, the actual underlying cause of disease, or depression, for the first time, rather than just tackling the signs and symptoms as we have done, done in the past, and we see in some academic studies. Patients that are in remission and free from their depressive symptoms for months at a time after just one or two doses uh, of of psilocybin, which is you know something that we've never seen before.
0: Yeah, that that's remarkable. Um you mentioned the circuitry abnormalities underlying uh being the underlying cause of depression. Is that a, like an overactivity, an underactivity? Is it just like a Dysynergistic abnormality in the circuitry do we know or is that still need to be elucidated
2: yeah i'm not sure we fully understand the exact nature of that sort of dysfunctional circuitry you've probably read uh, how to change your mind by michael michael and it was a netflix series but i'm going to steal from from him he has a really great analogy about how uh, psychedelics may help uh in depression and, and addiction and um uh, He relates it to skiing down a mountain and you're skiing through the snow. And as you, the more times you ski down, you form ruts with your skis. And the ruts get deeper and deeper until it's hard to get out of the ruts. And that's the only way that you can ski down a mountain. A bit like the way we form habits. And habit formation is generally good. It helps us stay safe, not trip over the curb every time we, we want to walk up it and not have to relearn things all the time. But when it comes to... Maladaptive patterns of thinking—you know—that negative rumination, the habit formation pattern—is is not necessarily helpful. But what psychedelics can do through that neuroplasticity is create a fresh fall of snow, uh, so that uh, you're then free to ski down the mountain a different way and, and learn new habits and different patterns of thinking. So it's—it's. It's, I think it's a helpful visual uh, kind of analogy, but I'm not sure we specifically know the exact circuitry dysfunction or how exactly uh, psychedelics uh, are addressing them.
1: Practically speaking, though, it kind of makes sense to think about brain... I mean, it's such a complex organ, the brain, and it makes sense that all these different parts of the brain, all the different lobes that we've already attributed to all these different functions communicate and that it's not as simple as just addressing, you know, one uh, neurotransmitter or one, you know, particular part of that circuitry. You know, when we think about, or when I think about even... Uh, kind of conventional therapy that you you know you go and see a therapist and a lot of that work at least in what I've experienced and what I know other people have experienced a lot of that has to do with kind of rebuilding those uh, thought patterns kind of like you said the maladaptive thinking patterns are what can cause so many problems for people because you kind of are like your brain has fallen into this pattern of you know skiing down the mountain a certain way and a lot of that work comes from reconstructing the thought process that you you go through when you experience a certain emotion or when you experience a certain stressor. So it's really cool that there's potential to kind of you know, hard, hotwire it, what's it called hot wire it's almost it's, it's cool that there's a way to hotwire this process. And for people who have experienced you know years and years of skiing down the mountain in a maladaptive way in a way that's harmful to them in a way that's harmful to their thinking, to be able to hotwire this this recircuitry. Um, and and kind of fast track it therapeutically in a way that we've never seen before. So that's really exciting. Um, yeah, like
2: uh, the th- the theory makes sense to me. And you're absolutely right. Psychotherapy uh, cr- also creates neuroplasticity. Um, SSRI's current treatments like Prozac create neuroplasticity, but perhaps not to the um, uh, intense amount that psychedelics do in a short period of time to have such you know. Uh, um, such profound effects.
1: And I actually wanted to ask a very technical question, if you don't mind sharing. Um, I noticed that when I was looking when I was looking through your company's website, I noticed that a lot of the compounds you work with are called their deuterated analogues. Can you explain what that means to someone who might not be a, a chemist and, and why you would modify the compound? What sort of effect do you hope that that would have for the treatment in someone's body? Is there a purpose yeah. for that?
2: Yeah, there's definitely a purpose. So uh, what, what we don't want to do with this, right now with these molecules, because we want to get to uh, uh, approved treatments as fast as we can, we don't really want to be changing how the molecules work in the body. We don't want to change their receptor binding profile, because that might change their efficacy, plus or minus. It might change the side effect profile, plus or minus. So we really want to leave that intact. So we're not changing the pharmacology. But what the duration does is it helps us change the pharmacokinetics, uh, and I'll explain what I mean. So deuteration is the selective substitution of certain hydrogen atoms on the molecule with deuterium or heavy hydrogen. And where you substitute on on the molecule makes a difference to how it behaves. And uh, we know through our through our, our work that uh, selective uh, deuteration can improve bioavailability of uh, these molecules and it can also improve. Uh, brain penetration that makes the molecules more lipophilic. Um, It essentially helps uh, make these uh, molecules get in and out of the site of action on the brain more more efficiently. Um, Why is that important? Uh, It's important for scale because some of these treatments like LSD and psilocybin are very long-acting and we want to address address that and and make them uh, them, uh, shorter-acting. But it's also important for um, robust and predictable responses. Um, you know, psilocybin is, is, is a prodrug, as I mentioned. That metabolism from psilocybin to psilocin takes a long time and creates this long period. So our psilocybin analog is, is not a prodrug. Uh, but that metabolism within individuals is highly variable. So one patient might have a very profound psychedelic experience from uh, a dose, say 25 milligrams of psilocybin, and another patient might have just a moderate uh, reaction uh, to the same dose. And in, in, you know in clinical practice and in clinical research, that's a, that's a challenge. Variability you know can kill drug development and we want to make sure that uh, these treatments are predictable, particularly in psychiatric disorders. So from a combination of removing the pro-drug nature and, in, and improving the, or reducing the variability, improving the speed to onset, so how quickly these effects kick in, shortening the duration. We're trying to create treatments that are uh, more drug-like and less natural-like, if you like, uh, but more scalable and predictable uh, so that we can um, provide a better experience for patients, a more convenient experience for providers. And at the end of the day, you know these also these gyms also have to be reimbursed. So by cutting down the amount of time the patients have to spend in a clinical setting being supervised we're cutting the cost of administration the cost of the healthcare system as well which hopefully will lead to uh, improved reimbursement so more people can get access
1: wow i never i never would have thought that such a seemingly small change or modification could make such a big difference and in so many ways um you know thinking about drug development i really took for granted how complicated that process is and you know, when we take Advil for a headache or see an ad for some sort of cancer treatment, you know, on TV, it seems so. Like you know, we see these things turn out so often, and it's it's really easy to I think to take for granted how many different things are considered along the way, and you know how many different people you're trying to make happy between you know, like you said, patients, providers, the healthcare system, the FDA. Um, it's it's kind of remarkable when when anything really makes it out the other end.
2: It is. Drug development is really hard, and um, it takes a long time. And there's, there's lots of pitfalls along the way and hurdles. And, uh, you know, one of the challenges with altering these molecules is that they're new. That makes them new and novel. So this means we have to go through a lot of work um, and do a lot of testing before we can even dose a single patient with them. Um, now, normally, if you are starting with a brand-new molecule, that might take three to six years before it ever gets to a, a, the first test patient. Um, we've managed to get from that discovery sort of chemistry phase into dosing uh, patients in about 18 months. And there's two reasons it's been faster. One is that we know a lot about these molecules that you know some of them are 50, 60 years old. And we also know quite a lot about deuteration. Deuteration has been used in a number of other uh, treatments, especially those, uh, involving the brain to make it more efficient. So we, we put those two things together. We managed to speed up, um, the whole sort of discovery process and, uh, we started dosing patients, uh, last August and, uh, expect to get our first glimpse of results in, in a few weeks from now, It's quite exciting.
1: That is very exciting. Wow. That's
0: awesome. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, we're, we're talking about treatment, um, and, you know, dosing our first patients. They're dosing your first patients. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so excited. I'm like I'm part of the team now. Um, but so you're you know dosing these first patients. What what does the treatment look like? How does it? And how does it compare and contrast to that of both talk therapy and conventional therapeutics like SSRIs?
2: So SSRIs, um, as I said, really address just the signs and symptoms. Uh, of of disease and they work well for a lot of people but there are also a lot of folks that they don't work well for Um, they're also quite slow to work so if you give if you dose with ssris it's a chronic treatment given every day Uh, after three months on average about a third of patients will respond after 12 months of taking these treatments every day about two-thirds of patients will respond and then the other third don't respond at all, so slow and 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 on, uh, to respond, and, and not everyone gets help. They also come with a number of side effects: sexual dysfunction, weight gain, and many patients just feel this emotional blunting, uh, which basically means that the lowest of, of their emotions have been taken away—the depression—but also the highs, so they don't feel joy as well. So many patients end up cycling through. Uh, different SSRIs to try and find something that that makes them feel better and more satisfied with. Psychedelics are a completely different way to think about treating depression. It's not taking a pill every day and expecting it to do the work. The patient kind of actually has to do some of the work themselves. So patients are uh, prepared for their dosing session. Um, There's some, I wouldn't call it talk therapy, but I would call it psychological preparation and support. Have a session or maybe two where um, their physician helps them understand what they might experience. Some of those experiences, some of those experiences might be quite traumatic because they're addressing something underlying their depression or their addiction. Um, they, they're, asked, they're sort of guided to go into the treatment session with intent and with goals. And that, so that happens once or twice before before treatment. Patients prepared. During treatment, they're in a room that's very comfortable. It's not definitely not a clinical room. Uh, they're on a the couch or a, on, a, on a bed, and they're wearing uh, an eye mask to remove any external distractions. They're, they're wearing headphones with music that helps them uh, sort of focus inwards. Mm-hmm. There's somebody in the room uh, as an observer, making sure that the patient's safe and doesn't get off track. And then they're in that treatment zone for however long the, uh, the treatment works. Uh, with t- typical MSD, that's eight to 10 hours. With psilocybin, six to eight hours. Uh, with our psilocybin analog, we think it'll be about two and a half hours. Uh, with our DMT analog, we think that could be 30 to 45 to 50 minutes or so we could probably adjust it uh, a fair amount. Uh, so you can see we're trying to make these more scalable. So this treatment session happens, and quite quickly after that, there's a follow up with the physician um, to help the patient understand what it is they just experienced and integrate that back into their original goals and their intentions. Um, typically, as we've seen in some of the best studies, um, patients receiving a second dose three to four weeks later, and it seems that that, that you know the, the first session is probably quite profound. The second session. It's almost like the first session works as a a preparation for that and helps solidify those benefits. And there are some studies, uh, particularly out of Johns Hopkins where uh, patients have been in remission for six or 12 months after just two doses, uh, which is stunning. And you think about those percentages I talked about with SSRIs in the Johns Hopkins study, uh, four weeks after two doses of psilocybin, um, uh, fifty-four percent of patients uh were in remission, and seventy-one percent of patients uh had had a, you know, a basically a clinically significant reduction in their depressive symptoms, and those those percentages, which are much higher than SSRIs and much faster, persisted in about the same ratios six months and twelve months later. So it's you know it's a really different paradigm uh, shift. It takes a you know bit of investment uh, from the patient, but. Uh, And they've got to go and do that work. But this is really an opportunity. I I hate to use the word cure. That sounds a bit unprofessional, but I mean, really changing the course of disease, really quite different.
0: Yeah. And what, so the population that these studies are looking at, are they, um, you know, I, I don't want to use the term garden variety to describe depression. That seems kind of reductive, but is it people who are like responders and, or are these like people who have treatment resistant depression? and have failed one, two, three different types of therapies?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So different groups are studying different indications. There's certainly a group that's studying treatment-resistant depression. Those patients are quite difficult and many of them have tried many different, um, many different treatments and many of them may not respond to psychedelics either, to be fair, you know, there's always going to be a portion of patients that don't respond. We're looking at major depressive disorder, which is the, the bulk of patients that are depressed um, many of those will have tried different treatments too. And we fully expect that. Uh, and as I said, many of them cycle through SSRIs because they're not well tolerated or they're just dissatisfied. Uh, but there's really been nothing much else. If if your SSRIs aren't working, then maybe you're trying you know, TMS or ECT or something uh, not quite as pleasant. Um, so this, for the first time in, in 30 years, offers something different.
1: And it's really interesting to think about, interesting and exciting to think about the potential impact this could have, even beyond the scope of major depressive disorder. I know you mentioned a couple other indications that um, have sort of inspired people in at Sybin to to do this work. Uh, you mentioned your mother and addiction. How do you hope that Sybin could have? You know, best case scenario, all this works, um, and I hope that is the case. If Sybin is successful in, in doing what they've set out to do, how do you think you'll change the landscape of mental health and what indications, especially? are you looking at to sort of make the biggest impact in?
2: Well, major depressive disorder, depression, and anxiety disorders are the first ones that we're tackling. uh, And they're highly prevalent. Uh, 300 million people around the world affected by depression. Uh, Something like 12 or 13% of the population is experiencing anxiety disorder of some kind at any one time is probably the most prevalent. For me, the most exciting potential is in addictions. And we've seen some great data in alcohol use and, and other addictions. And the reason I think it's so exciting, I think I think psychedelics are perfectly suited for treating addictions. So typically when we treat addictions, we're giving patients some quite unpleasant drug uh, every day that's on, on a chronic basis that's battling their chronic addiction. So one is, one is fighting the other all the time and eventually the addiction wins pretty much every time there's relapse with um with psychedelics if you can really intervene pharmaceutically like I've described and patients end up uh, quite quickly without any uh, cravings and for weeks or months at a time then you're creating a clean space for that person to create new habits right uh, be more productive reconnect with friends family get off the street get a job you know what what depending on where they are in their in their life you know addiction of any kind is, is pretty disruptive um, and when you think that the opioid crisis has taken more lives than the AIDS epidemic and destroyed many, you know, rural, poor rural communities and inner cities, this, these have the potential to transform communities, not just individual lives, but communities. So that, that really excites me. We're a little bit further away from those studies. But for me personally, uh, that's, uh, that's the driver. So
0: we talk about all the all the good stuff, all of the successes and the hopes and the dreams. Um, But with any of that stuff, you know, you're going to hit obstacles, you're going to hit roadblocks. What kind of challenges has Simon faced so far and how have you guys worked to overcome those?
2: yeah so I mentioned that we had to do a lot of work even before we could uh, dose, dose dose the first patient. so there's lots of hurdles there, lots of things that can go wrong. We've also been growing the uh, the organization hiring people and engaging labs and scientists and clinicians around the world in five or six countries during a pandemic. yeah wow. so it's been <laughs> uh, it's it's been quite a challenge, but we've got impressive. From- yeah, we, you know, we have maybe 50 or so um, external partners that each have expertise in, in, in all aspects of, of drug development, plus our own internal lab and team of 50 or 60 or so. So just making that all happen and, and dealing with the supply chain issues of reagents, you know, and, and testing facilities, recruiting patients. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's challenging in our, in our depression study, that's quite small to start with. There's only expected to be around 32 patients that involves 500 clinical interactions. You know, so it's, there's a high, high amount of complexity and wow. doing all of that, all of that virtually, but, uh, yeah, we have, we have a phenomenal team they have done this many times before and, uh, so far, you know, so far knock on wood so far, so good.
1: It sounds like you all have really set yourself up for, for success and to, to kind of tackle this problem with, with the best people cut out for the job. And with that, I'm so excited to have been able to speak to you today. We've learned so much, I've learned so much. Um, thank you so much for sharing some of your personal story as well as Saibin's story. Um, and we, we really do wish you the best. I'm excited to, to see what, what's next for you all and to get those results in a few weeks.
2: <laughs> yeah me too I'm excited about that fingers crossed uh, great to spend time with you both and thanks so much for your interest in, in what we're doing really appreciate it. That.
0: and that's all for this week's episode you can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases upcoming topics and our science shenanigans
1: if you're enjoying our show leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find Science and Society be sure to tune in to episode 3 coming July 3rd
0: peace love and science, science.